0: A common saying has existed in evangelical churches for many years. It goes like this, the, the pastor or somebody says, God is good. The congregation responds all the time. The pastor then echoes back all the time, and the congregation responds, God is good. God is good. The first time I heard that, I was a middle school boy, and we had an interim pastor, uh, Albion Men's, who preached quite a bit, a wonderful man of God, African-American man, and he would begin the service every time with that same decree. But what struck me so most about Albion is that Albion uh, had a wife who, uh, who since passed away of, of sickness, and she was wheelchair bound. And I would always sit in the front section. We were kind of the uh, we had two sections to sit. I always sat right over here in this front area, and Albion's wife was would be wheeled up and would sit right here. And so here I watched this man for many, many months would begin the service coming forward with his wife there in the front, sick, raising a family, and he would begin every service with that same declaration. God is good. The congregation says, all the time, on all the time. And it made me stick to, in my mind, this powerful representation of this man's belief that God is good even when your wife is sick and dying. God is good. That declaration, that reality is something that caused me to listen intently to the words that he said. He was walking and believing through a storm in his life that lasted many, many years. In our letter today, as we walk through Psalm 119, strophe by strophe, strophe means poetic paragraph, taking letter by letter through all of these verses, all 22 letters, we come now to this letter. our our T sound, tet. And in this letter, the psalmist provides for us, I believe, that same declaration. Truly, he believes God is good all the time. And all the time? You'll catch on eventually because I'm going to do that a lot through this. So this is like an exercise for all of us here. And as we say that statement, as you hear that, in some of your minds, I'm full aware, in the back of your mind, in many of our minds, we might say, but what about? And there's these what about moments that come in of sin that's been committed to us or loss or hurt or grievances that have taken place that cause us to struggle through with the words to say that with confidence, with faith, confidence, with faith, that truly, no, no, no. Even right now, all the time, God is good. That declaration, that is what the psalmist gives us in these eight verses, this gift to us to build our understanding around as we notice these three particular attributes that build out a statement that can make us make that same pastoral and congregational response that God is good and all the time. Let's begin first and foremost in verse 65 and 66 as we notice together, that the Lord is always good to his servants. The Lord is always good to his servants. And the psalmist reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible, please do follow in the Pewback Bible in front of you. Let me read this for us, 65 and 66. The psalmist says to Yahweh, to the Lord, "'You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord.'" According to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. The five of these eight Hebrew sentences begins with the Hebrew word to, which is, which is good. Five different times, good, God, you are good. And he begins this strophe, this poetic paragraph, by saying and declaring on the Lord's goodness. The New English Translation picks this up, you are good to your servant." The Lord is good to his servant his, and acts according to his word and his promises. In every one of us, in every one of our lives, there's this statement, there's this reality. Well, that's easy for you to say, especially if you're in a storm right now. It's easy for, you, for, for us to look at someone else's life and say, yeah, Lord, you are good and you deal well with your servant. But perhaps there's a part of you that says, but what about me? He may have dealt well with you, but what about me? Or this comparison that says, let's see how you do in the storm if you say that as well. If you went through what I've gone through or going through or just beginning right now. This pain is echoed in our own lives as we come to say and believe that the Lord truly is good. It reflects his character, his attributes. And the psalmist with complete resolve, we're going to see as we walk through this psalm that he has a past. He has lived a life in which he has gone astray from the Lord beforehand. And now he's walking in step with the way the Lord desires him. But in walking in step with the Lord, listen, he's experiencing severe admonishment, adversity, affliction, he calls it. Because he's now walking in the Lord. But before he experienced this season of affliction, he's in right now for the sake of his faith. He said, I lived life astray. I lived life astray. I experienced hardships before by being outside of your hand. And now that I'm in your hand, Lord... I'm facing consequences. But God, you are good. You are good. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. That part of us that says, well, but what about this area of my life? The reality of what the scriptures present for us is that none of us can lay a claim of evidence against God that says God is not good in his character and attributes and in his will. God is good, all the time, and all the time, God is good. Very much then, like Job, there's this echo. As we spoke last week, there's some comparisons, that I drew out in that book between, uh, in that letter between Psalm 23. I saw that there's a lot of paragraphs or a lot of parallels between Psalm 23 and that particular letter that we looked at last week in head. Now in this letter, I think there's a lot of. Parallels to the Book of Job all over the place is sown throughout it. We'll make note of a couple of them, but there's far more than we could even ever take time to ad- advance in a morning together. But one of those, I think, that naturally comes when we deal with five of these eight, saying that God is good. Maybe that human part of us that's impacted again by the fall that looks and says, "Yeah, but what about then?" We're reminded of the Book of Job, As Satan's roaming and he comes and the Lord says, "Hey." Have you seen my servant Job, this one who's righteous and upright? And what's Satan's accusation? Well, he's only that way because you haven't allowed him to suffer. You've blessed him so much. If you didn't, he would turn on you in a second. And so the story unfolds in this way, that the blessings of God, those that live upright lives according to the grace of God, the goodness of God, and believe in the goodness of God, is only because they have it easy. The book of Job demonstrates that that is untrue. We'll notice another parallel in Job 13 in just a little bit together. But all of us desire what the psalmist says here and what he does with this understanding that, God, you are good, is it leads him to say in verse 66, "'Lord, teach me good judgment and knowledge.'" For I believe in your commandments. As a matter of fact, flip over if, uh, to, to 1 Kings. Flip over to 1 Kings. If you're on a Pewback Bible, that's t- page 282. And what the psalmist does is he sounds like young King Solomon, David's son, David's son, who becomes this boy king, this young man who becomes the position of king of Israel. And Solomon, in this incredible face of adversity, he asks the Lord a particular request. We're going to begin in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. The boy king, Solomon, takes on the throne and he makes his request to the Lord. And it sounds a lot like I'm going to read it again, so it's fresh in your mind. As the psalmist says, "Lord, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments." So let that ring in your mind as we read what Solomon prays for in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. It says, "Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties." Your servant is here among the people, you have chosen a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. The Psalmist knows that the Lord is good, and like young King Solomon he asked for the same thing, discernment and wisdom live accordingly to the good word, the commandments, the covenant that God has given to his people. That's his desire. He desires to be taught by the Lord. He desires to know the commandments of God. Where does he go to to know how to live? Does he go to read the clouds? Does he go to a horoscope? What does he do? He turns to the Lord's commandments. For I believe in your commandments, he says. If you and I pray, Lord, give us wisdom, God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment? But we would neglect His word. What are we doing? Right? Well, I'm going through conflict when I'm trying to figure out what should I do next. And I pray, as I, I pray regularly, God, would you give me wisdom? But if I at the same time neglect His word and I neglect the people who fear the Lord, what am I doing? I'm asking for wisdom while I cover my ears and my eyes. I'm making a huge mistake. What the psalmist says is, is, Lord, I know you are good, and you have dealt well with me according to your word. So teach me, teach me, teach me, for I believe in your commandments. Yes, the Lord is always good to his servant. Said another way, God is good. All the time, I'm so proud of us. All right, keep going here. Number two, the Lord's servants are given a similar song to sing, verse 67 through 70. We're going to notice two attributes of this, and these this this portion is completely original to myself. Now, this is the lyrics for "Amazing Grace." You'll see, two of our next subpoints here. I, I do want to give us some background as we walk through this. Of course, "Amazing Grace" written many, many years after this psalm was written. In our Chapel Sunday School class that meets at 9.30, John always does a good job of setting up our uh, a song or two that's sung. He gives us a, a, the story, the hymn story background. And I want to give that to you. You may be familiar with John Newton's story, his background. But if you don't, I think it helps to give us a, a better understanding. So again, I've chosen to, to take these two little verses from Amazing Grace because I think it reflects these four verses actually from from Psalm 119, incredibly well. Uh, John Newton grew up and he had a h- very hard life. Uh, his mother was a Puritan. That's not what made his life hard, uh, but his mother passed away when he was only six years old, which led to his father predominantly raising him. His father was a sea captain, so at the age of 11, so too did John Newton begin life on the seas, which was a hard life, not a great place for a preteen to grow up. So he a- accompanied many of the ways of life. He became an avid drinker, Uh, fights, all kinds of turmoil, and developed a severe problem with any sense of authority, which is not good if you're not a captain of a ship. Uh, This led to a lot of conflict that he had in his life. Uh, could not get along with very many crews, but this is one of the only skills that he developed as a man who knew the seas. Things began to go south as he entered into his 20s. While in his 20s, he ultimately became a part of the British Royal Navy, Not too many things you can do besides that. He didn't also respond well to that authority structure. Uh, So he attempted to get out of the Navy, tried to abandon. That didn't go well. He ended up taking 96 lashes to his body, was kicked out. Not very much you can do in that context. And so he ultimately took a job uh, involved with the British African slave trade. Involved with the slave trade, uh, he did not get along with his crew there either. Go figure, problem with authority. He didn't get along there was abandoned in West Africa he was actually sold as a slave to an African royal there who was also working from the African perspective the slave trade. He was ultimately a servant and was able to attempt to escape he ultimately was able to, to be released while he was on the boat the boat began to fall apart massive storm hit he claimed and called out to God and God saved him I mean, from the storm from the consequences of what were to follow. And what happened to his life as he got out, we'd say that the rest of the story is history, but it's not. He ultimately captained three different travels back and forth, furthering the African-British slave trade. While this took place, uh, ultimately he had a stroke, severe failing of his health. What happened with John Newton then is the Lord in his providence ultimately rescued him and saved him from his life. The Spirit of God used the Word of God in his life to show him the grievance of his sin, the nastiness, and the evil of slavery. The Lord saved him, and he grew in faith. A number of years later, he would become and be ordained by the Anglican Church, became a well-known preacher, a well-known psalm writer, and songwriter. Eight different years later, he would write the words for Amazing Grace but never at peace, repentant for the life that he lived while he lived astray from the hand of God, he dedicated most of his later years to to seeing the British-English slave trade come to an end. He wrote against it by using his story of the evils and the nastiness of what took place. And God used that as he partnered with William Wilberforce that we've spoken about before, who drew comfort from this 119 psalm. And he was able to see the slave trade come to an end in 1807 as he died December of that year. The Lord is able to take a people that are blind. The Lord is able to take a person's life who is astray and give them sight by the gospel and rewire their very understanding of right and wrong to live in allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the business of completely changing lives. And as Christians, though our stories have different paragraphs, it follows the same type. We might say as well with our songs that we sing, the words may be a little different. Oh, but the structure is the same. The story is the same. The Lord's servants are given a similar song to sing. So in 67 and 68, we see, this is our song, church. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 67 and 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Remember, his affliction's coming because he's now living for Yahweh, abiding by the covenant laws of God. But now I keep your word. So before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good, so teach me your statutes. Before he came to Christ, he had no desire. Before he came to the Lord, before he was living in hand with the Word of God, he had no desire to live according to the Word of God, and it came with consequences. A life astray. Keep this in mind. A life astray. A life astray. What's your life astray? You realize we could block off the next month of our schedules And one at a time, every one of us could get up here and share our life astray. And we still wouldn't have enough time to share what the Lord rescued us from. We still wouldn't have time to cover all the sin that Jesus Christ bore on his body on the cross. And the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I see. But now I keep your word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to take even slave traders, and make them people committed to abolishing the nasty sin that they once partook in. He remakes us new. He gives us eyes to see. If you this morning are in a position where you came in astray, where you're your own king and you're just dabbling, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to make you see. He invites you into his affliction. He invites you into his affliction. And it's better to be afflicted for the sake of Christ, to know Jesus and his sufferings, than it is to live astray by our, our own guiding as our own captains. It's better to be in affliction while walking in the will of God by his word than it is to believe with all riches and celebrations of the world, but outside of the hand of God who made himself known by his word. Let me say it again, because I just said a lot of words. The psalmist is saying, it's better, God that I am afflicted but in your hand according to your word than it is if I live astray but not afflicted. How do we demonstrate this in our lives then? Because I don't think anyone's chasing us down because we're Christians, not Nacogdoches that I'm aware of. Well, here's some small ways that we demonstrate that. Students, we reflect if we believe it's better to get an average or below average grade and be honest for the Lord than it is to cheat and get a great grade. Again, the gospel impacts every area of our life. It can't be compartmentalized. It has to impact every area, every temptation of our lives. So as those who work and pay taxes, we reflect if we believe it is better to pay Caesar what is Caesar's and herein honor the Lord than it is to go astray and distort the numbers. We believe as those who are married that it is better to honor and respect our spouse, as those who have parents to honor our parents, as those who have children to train them up, not in exasperation. It's better to experience the afflictions that may come for doing what honors the Lord according to his word than it is to experience the ways of the world, even if that's the common ground. That's what the gospel does for us. It truly makes us say, Lord, I actually believe that it's better that I would live a life, experience any discomfort, experience the afflictions that come by living and abiding by your word, being in your hand, than it is if I go astray and do this my own way. Every single day, you and I answer that statement with every single decision that faces before us. Oh, God, it's better that I would face affliction than that I would go astray. It's better that I would face affliction and that I would go astray. So, God, we do believe that you are good. Teach us your statutes. Give us the courage and wisdom. And what does this do for us in, in the New Testament? What's it do? It causes the people to be so distinguished from the world that the Scriptures tell them, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you is persevering, even in the face of affliction, because the Word of God is good, and God is good And all the time. So, Grace, we have a similar song to sing for the psalmist, and it continues in 69 and 70. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. 69 and 70. The psalmist says, The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Insolent, arrogant, proud. Their heart, speaking of the insolent, their heart is unfeeling like fat. But I delight in your law. And this sounds a lot like Job 13. We won't flip there, but you can write down Job 12 and 13. It's one of a number of references that Job makes in accusations against his friends. Zophar just speaks, and we have these friends that come along him. If you're familiar with the book of Job, Job is faithful. The Lord allows him to endure suffering and hardship And yet Job abides in the word of God. He abides in his trust of God. He's going through these incredibly hard, difficult times. His friends are coming and giving him terrible counsel, terrible counsel. And they're even slandering him. And Zophar just gives this statement, this idea of, look, man, you did something to deserve this. And he's about to pull his hair out. And he responds in Job 13.4. He tells him, listen, he's speaking of his friends. He says, you whitewash with lies. You whitewash with lies. You are worthless doctors. You're lying about me. It's not true. What does the psalmist say here in 69? The insolent smear me with lies. But what? With my whole heart I keep your precepts. Like Job in the midst of suffering and affliction that he has because he's living an upright life fearing God. It leads him to do what? It leads him to gossip and slander back? No. It actually sparks him to do something radically different. It drives him to, with his whole heart, further keep the Lord's precepts and to delight in Yahweh's law. Torah, the teaching, the law of God, it's good. It reveals the character and attributes of God. We can know him according to his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. When you and I are lied about, when you're gossiped about, when you're slandered about, how do you want to respond? If you want to see how our world responds, just wait about three months. And we're going to see about 57 million attack ads on television for the next year and a half. Brace yourself. What the psalmist does is he doesn't go get a marketing firm to re attack back. What Job does is he doesn't go go launch this campaign to get back at his friends. No. What does the psalmist do? The adversity he experiences, the lies, the gossip, the slander that he experiences for knowing the Lord through many dangers, toils, and snares, what does he do? It drives him to say, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. I delight in your law. The affliction that he has for the sake of Christ causes him to run harder and faster into the Word of God, not to despise God, but to run to God. When when a child goes to a carnival for one of the first times and they see the noise and the drama that's all around them, the lights, it may be captivating, but it also may be terrifying for most kids as the clowns are coming all around them. What's it do to the child who's holding the hand of their parent? It leads them to grasp tighter in this unfamiliar situation. Not to let go and to strike back. Not to let go and go try to defend themselves. But rather to double down and cling that much harder to the hand of the one they trust. That is what the psalmist does. He experiences affliction through many trials. And it sparks him to run that much harder towards the word and the will of the Lord. That's the wisdom that we have. Grace, through many toils, dangers, and snares, we have already come. So, our job is to remind each other of that reality every day. Every day, as we find each other getting trapped or afflicted or adversity that you may face in your life, to remind one another, listen, we have already come. And the Lord is good. All the time. And all the time, very good. Thirdly, the Lord's servants are uniquely gifted with a heavenly perspective while on earth. The gift that we have to mature in God, to be one who follows after the Lord Jesus Christ, to mature up in his word, is that God gives his people a unique gift that is out of this world, the Lord's servants are uniquely gifted with a heavenly perspective while on earth. Let me show you, 71 and 72. The psalmist says, listen to this, this is wild. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better To me, than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, maybe you've been taking the Psalm 119 challenge and you've been praying through these verses and you've perhaps prayed through these verses this week. This is a hard prayer to pray. It is good for me that I was afflicted, he says. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Remember, he's in the hand of the Lord and others are coming against the hand of the Lord and therefore him. I will never stop encouraging you to get to know your church body, your church family, Word Worship Service family. Get to know the people around you, in front of you, behind you. Have them over for dinner, do coffee, get together, and find out their stories of what the Lord is doing in their life. Listen to their perspectives. That is one of the sweetest blessings that I can possibly encourage you to walk in. I can't tell you how blessed Sarah and I have been over the last year to be here. I know Stephen would absolutely say the same thing. To get to know you and to hear your stories, perhaps they're commonplace to you, but so many of you have walked through adversity. Not even of recent, but decades and decades ago. You've experienced adversity, and yet you trust the Lord, and you're able to say in daily life today, in 2019, as you experience new endurance situations for your faith, so many of you say after going through hardships, this statement, it is good for me, that I was afflicted. Oh, that I might learn your statutes. What a statement. What a gift. Don't withhold it from the brothers and sisters in your church body. Don't hoard it. None of us can say for another person those words. But we can share how the Lord has matured us and as we face seasons of affliction to do what the psalmist says and run that much more intently to the Word of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ as He ministers to us by His Spirit in our daily lives. Not one of us can make somebody else puppet those words. Only you in your life can make this statement. This is just like Romans 8:28, 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. The Lord is conforming us. The psalmist says the same idea: the afflictions that I face, all things, the afflictions that I face. Oh, that I might learn your statutes. What a gift. Is there a hardship in your life that you've yet to come to peace with? An adversity you've experienced, suffering the sin of another against your life? Or loss? Where you can be like the psalmist here and begin to mouth it, even if you can't get the words out yet, to say, Lord, it is good for me That I was afflicted. Mouth the words without it even coming out. Just mouth them to God in prayer. Truly believe God. It is good that I was afflicted in that. The Lord's servants in His time and in His strength are uniquely gifted with a heavenly perspective that is not a perspective of this earth. It's a gift of God. And it leads him to draw this final statement in this letter in 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Scripture is true because it is God breathed, it is of God. Scripture isn't true because any number of people got into a room and said, hey, this will be great. Let's make that one from God. All the church can do, all man can do, is receive the authoritative, God-breathed revelation. Scripture is true because it by nature is of God. It comforts us. It serves a purpose to shape us into the image of Christ. Scripture is only received by man. It's breathed by God through people, given to people. And it serves a purpose in our life. That the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped, complete, mature for every good work. It serves a purpose. And the psalmist says of that purpose, oh, it is better for me than thousands of pieces of gold or silver. It's priceless is another way of saying that. It's everything. He truly believes. This man actually believes that the Scriptures, the Word of God, the law of your mouth, Lord, the the teaching of God here is better for me than thousands of gold and silver. How valuable the word of God is for him. I looked up the most expensive book ever sold. What I found was in 1994, Bill Gates purchased Leonardo da Vinci's handwritten notebook. For modern equivalent, it came out to $50 million. He paid for that. We missed an opportunity. We should have bought that. Right? No. $50 million for a book. The psalmist says, oh, no, no. The Word of God is more priceless. It's worth more to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. The Word of God is more priceless than da Vinci's work. It's more personal than that as well. Priceless and personal because of what the scriptures do, what the Word of God will do in your life by the Spirit of God. There's a pastor uh, served many years in the Virginia area. And his daughter, named Melissa, uh, took her life, I believe, at age 32. She struggled with mental illness and addictions and other things in her life and hardships. Obviously, it shaped his life dramatically when that happened. And trying to help her, she was on this road of struggling back and forth. He asked her as they were, he took a call to move towards the center of the country, and he asked her to, to pack his books for him. And so she packed all of his library for him, and he went and, he, and they put it in storage that way he, he could give her a gift, give her some stability, give her a good financial gift, and he paid her for that. And he went then, and she took her life and forgot about the books for a while. Obviously, that put life on hold. And he got to a point then where he was able to open his books. He finally cleared out the storage, took the books, and began to open them. And inside of those books, each individual box with his books, his daughter wrote him a handwritten note he found these letters from his daughter after his daughter had died. I can assure you that those handwritten letters are more valuable than $50 million to that man. They are more priceless than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. The psalmist says of the Word of God that we might know him, we might know the wisdom and the goodness of God that his word, his law, his scripture, is of more value. It's better to him than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In the word of God, my church family, we have at our fingertips the voice of God that is a sure foundation to hear the word and to do it. To hear the word and to do it. The Word of God is of that kind of value. To receive it and then to do it is to bring a sweet blessing of riches into the life of countless people. Into one another as a church body and into the community and the places of work and our neighborhoods where we live. They will be richly blessed by the people of God who build their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh. He's worthy of our lives. Amen? We can say truly in every season, God is good. All the time. That's Ted. Next steps. Next steps. Two questions for you. Number one, when I say God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, is there in your life, and just a moment of silence in this, is there a but what about that speaks? I know it because I've had it in many different seasons of my life. Is there a but what about? My question for you, my challenge for you, the Spirit of God may have given you a multitude of challenges, of course, that aren't included in the next steps, but one that I challenge you with is, are you willing to talk to the Lord about it? Are you willing to talk to the Spirit of God about that in your life? But what abouts as we deal with the goodness and the faithfulness of God? Find time this week, schedule time this week to do business with the Lord in that area. And... Secondly and finally, how will further believing that Scripture is better for me than a wealth of gold reorient my schedule this week? How will believing that the Word of God is better for me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver, how will that truth, as we believe that together, make its way into our calendars, into our schedules? How will that impact us? How will that motivate us to take it up and read? To seek the Lord in it. To offer forgiveness where our hearts may be hard. Where we may have grown slothful. Let the Spirit of God work through His Word. Shaping His people in something that is more valuable than countless amounts of silver or gold. God's grace is truly amazing. He is worth your life. He is worth your song. He's given us a song to sing together. Do you know Jesus Christ is Lord? And if you know him as the Lord of your life, you have reason to sing of his amazing grace every day. Every day. Would you stand with me as we sing together as a church body?